0: From crypto winter to crypto geopolitics, from chat GPT to AI avatars, from zero proof identity to CBDCs and new forms of GovTech. Join inventors, artists, musicians, gamers, bankers, policymakers and rebels for a discussion on how technology is reshaping our world. From our offices in Dubai, this is the UAE Tech Podcast.
1: The argument for the control is, of course, what you started by saying is, you know, how do you ensure that the blockchain is not being weaponized? And here we stand as the white knight in the Cardano Foundation, and we are trying to ensure that there is sufficient blockchain for good use cases available for people to get inspired by, that they understand that there is things which can be done to save the world, obvious a good move, and it's not a weaponization, right? Because there is this information asymmetry.
0: Ahead of a summit in Dubai this November, we spoke with CEO Frederick Greggard on Cardano, global regulation, the role of central banks, and why emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence mean that trust, transparency, and verification is more important than ever. Is Cardano really blockchain's white knight, and will we be seeing more of them in the region soon? Special thanks to Oscar Wendell, Director of Content and Conferences at MCH Group, for stepping up to command this interview at the very last second after a schedule change.
2: Great, we're on. Okay, welcome Frederick Gregard to the UAE Tech Podcast. I'm Oscar Wendell with the MCH Group, and I'm standing in for John Lillywhite today. We're very excited to be talking about Cardano and the Cardano Summit and the Cardano Foundation.
1: So, my name is Frederick Gregard, and I'm the CEO of the Cardano Foundation, which is one of the pioneering entities behind the Cardano blockchain. Uh, it combines a set of pioneering technologies to provide an unparalleled security and sustainability to decentralized application systems and societies. And the societies is quite important because I think uh, uh, quite a few blockchain projects and also IT projects are sort of woken up over the years and figured out that, you know what? With a centralized technology, if people don't use it, it doesn't have any value. Yes. So with a decentralized technology, it's even worse so you, first, you need to have people to use it, but you also have to have people to contribute to it and to operate and to gather around it. So if you do not have a strong community just of, of not just users, but also of infrastructure people and node operators and so on, um, the security components and the game theory and those things doesn't actually hold water. And that's sort of where Cardano is extremely strong. So this sort of combination of a research driven approach, the proof of stake, um, under this proof of contribution umbrella, which also makes it uh, from an electricity consumption perspective, extremely good. The formal verification, sort of a layered architecture, smart contracts. The reason I keep saying that is because there is quite a few blockchains out there yet who still don't have smart contracts uh, abilities. A very big decentralization. We have a very strong governance. When you get into it, you will see, oh, there's maybe some things who can be improved. And we are on a governance journey. Uh, interoperability and sustainability, that's sort of some of the key words we can can think about.
2: This sounds extremely exciting and the, the vast amount of use cases and it's a living organism, the blockchain itself and the community. What is the role of the foundation in initiating the new features and seeing that it is an open ecosystem? How do you safeguard the competency of the people that are participating in its development and keep out bad actors, I'm guessing you you would have a potential for sabotage with the blockchain and, and scams or whatever.
1: Yeah, that's an amazing question. And so the third entity who came into existence after the fundraising is the Cardano Foundation. And the purpose of the Cardano Foundation is to be a non-profit foundation looking at optimizing decisions on the long time horizon. This sounds a little bit cryptic, but if you will imagine if you would do something which will increase... Let's Say your economic benefit tomorrow, or you will do something that would increase your economic benefit in 10 years' time. Which one would you choose? So most people would tend to move for what they can, you know, achieve for tomorrow. Yes. And what was really important when you think about blockchain and adoption of blockchain, this is um this is a marathon, it's not a sprint. So what was important was uh, you know, there was two commercial entities, Imurco and IOG, and the idea was to have a third entity which was not commercial and was really looking at you know the optimal state of the Cardano implementation in a decade or two decades from now and that's the the role of the Cardano foundation and we do sort of three things um one the first thing is operational resilience operation resilience on a blockchain is very very difficult yes um because you don't run the actual Node yourself, right? In Cardano's instance, there's over three thousand individuals or or companies who run Cardano. So if something goes wrong, you need to sort of have a way to sort of coordinate all of these anonymous people out there. And uh, that's, you know, the whole idea is that you do not coordinate those kind of uh, nodes, right? Because if you start coordinating, then there might be a centralized way of attacking it. Uh, So operation resilience, including network monitoring and so on, is extremely important. Because it, it, it allows larger and more established corporates also to enter the benefits of blockchain. Because they would have different questions they want to have answered compared to a startup who is blockchain native. And this allows us to bridge uh, the world of Web3 to Web2, but also the world of Web3 to the physical world of cargo containers in a, in a port Uh, in a harbor somewhere around the world or, you know, agricultural produce or physical identity papers in countries who's not digital yet or, you know, how phone companies actually work in terms of how they settle among each other, the way they they think about roaming and those kind of things. it opens up a whole new set of of use cases by having Operation Resilience um, in grasp.
2: Yeah, I mean, I want to dig deeper into this with adoption and and uh, the utility of the blockchains. I, th- I think it's fair to say with anything in a market economy, unless the benefits that are offered over existing solutions, you're not going to have a product that people are going to pay for unless it's a charity, right? So in parallel with the hype around decentralization, everyone's talking about blockchain, the benefits of decentralization. At the same time, when you look at big tech, the most valuable tech companies around the world, whether it is consumer tech or enterprise, Facebook, Amazon, Google, SAP, Microsoft, they are getting into web three. At the same time, they are really looking to centralize. The most successful companies out there are successful because they have walled gardens and they can centralize their users and they can't escape the products. Talking about a 10, 20 year perspective, Where are we moving? What role will blockchain have in the corporate world, in the global economy? Will it be decentralized as in the actors are decentralized or will it be a winner take all where blockchain becomes simply a tool to outcompete? And and, and again, to talk about the Pareto concept, typically the the strength goes towards a minority at the end, no matter what you do.
1: I mean, that's an amazing question. I hope you have some time now. huh? There is a couple of different aspects you need to look at. Right. So the first one is if you look into the 1990s, I mean, I'm an economist or investment banker of trade. Right. So I kind of, I, I kind of I draw parallels into the past and I try to project that into the future. And in the 1990s, so the most valuable, if you look at market cap companies would be ExxonMobil, it would be General Motors, Texaco, uh, Chevron, uh, Gulf Oil. You know, those kind of companies uh, in the two thousand, uh, we saw that, you know, the most valuable companies, uh, there was not a lot of overlap anymore. So what we suddenly had was we had General Electric. We had uh, Cisco. We had Exxon. We had Pfizer. Microsoft was for the first time there. Walmart, Citigroup, uh, Intel, and uh, we still had Shell. So Shell was sort of uh, is, 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 you know coming again. Right. And the, in the 2020s, right, what we saw is this Apple, Microsoft, uh, you know, Alphabet, uh, on top of my head, uh, Facebook, Tesla, Berkshire, Hathaway, uh, Tencent. Right. So what we really saw is that, you know, something is changing. Right. So we went sort of from heavy industry to consumer and tech and now to tech and Internet. And I think what we're going to see right now is we're going to see a huge battle because, you know, the, the giants who has all the capitalization, they don't die willingly. Right. <laughs> you yeah. need you need sort of a, you need a evolution or disruption or something like that. and and, and, and what you're probably going to see here is that as we evolve as humans, we also become more aware of certain things. So today we've traded user experience uh, over identity and self sovereign identity. So we sort of accepted that you know that these big giants they know more about us than we know about ourselves. Um, and, and that's to a certain extent has been great. But as we are now sort of experiencing this centralization where we also see that they actually they, they, they decide elections, right? based on the platforms you're on, if you go on some of these platforms, you, you, you cannot get a fair market price anymore because uh, you know depending on the IP address where you're sitting or the device you're from, they have the ability to control what kind of prices you see. And what you saw is that the regulators has been stepping in dramatically towards this use of power towards the consumers. And this has happened around the world. And we're not even talking about blockchain right now. We're just speaking about you know centralized technology, right? Yeah. And and the regulators is really stepping in here to protect the consumers and in certain instances also to, to protect the marketplace, like we see with the European Union and so on. So I think that what we're seeing right now is a situation where there is a chance that humanity will become irrelevant, specifically with the with sort of the 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 expand of large language uh, models, but also sort of you know emerging AI. Um, this sort of discussion about you know what is the purpose of humanity in the future is becoming larger and larger. And you've seen sort of city states and even countries playing with helicopter money and, you know, what are we going to do? And, you know, is it good for the economy that we have less people or do we need more people and those kind of aspects? So when you kind of put that hat on the table and you introduce something called blockchain where suddenly everything costs something, the fact that you cannot use a blockchain for free kills the business model of the Internet where information is for free. But when information is for free, the cost of misinformation is close to zero. And when you have these large language models who have been feeding on the information of the Internet but cannot tell you what is computable true, but they look at this large set of data where misinformation is for free, you sort of start getting some very heavy biases. And I think those biases compared to the regulatory change we see in sort of Web2 and and platform models today is enabling innovation in blockchain. And and you say, hey, what what are you talking about? What we're hearing about is the SEC and is the security and all those things. And now you're actually saying that there's a counter movement coming from the regulators towards these platforms called blockchain. And that's actually what we're seeing. The other part, what we're seeing is that we've been, you know, the the wealth is centered on very few people, and the power is centered on very few people. And we had the highest wealth transfer in history in the last ten years' time under COVID. And what we also saw that these few companies who decide the faith of everybody can be counted on two fingers, right? And uh, that means that we are taking away about two billion people who just don't have access because they don't have an identity. They're not a part of the sort of the Facebook economy or call it whatever you want. Right. Um, And there is now a technology called blockchain, which allows all the people on the planet Earth to have equal access to technology and to stay where they are. Not they don't have to move, but they can stay where they are and they can reap some of the benefits of this global resource called blockchain. And that allows you suddenly to start thinking about how would the world be if we had more equal terms, right? And I believe that there is some people out there, some untapped talent out there who is much smarter than the people who are sort of born into smartness. And when you start upgrading their knowledge and upgrading their access, you will start having a situation where we as a society might come together and reap the benefits of this new technology. And we are changing the incentives of these sort of centralized, everything is for free models to a situation where you suddenly have, you know, seven, eight billion people who can contribute to the global economy and they can start coming together as a society to solve the world's largest problems instead of sort of, you know, fighting each other and, you know, trying to sub optimize, you know, 10 square kilometers or, you know, a small nation state or try to build a border around them because they happen to have the only resource available and so on. So that's sort of the the long arcs. And the shorter version is, of course, that AI is going to power blockchain and blockchain is going to be the foundations for that. So you're going to see in the next 10 years that some of these things, you know, some of these models is going to be way more valuable um, than decentralized platforms.
2: I feel it's natural to move on from what you are talking about here with regulators, centralized information about everybody, to central bank digital currencies. Mm. Practically all central banks are looking at introducing CBDCs. What role will blockchain have in this, if any, or necessarily are blockchains needed? And are you looking at that? And I want to hear what you think about the risks of centralizing governments to be able to track literally both your movements, every single purchase you make and being able to retract any ownership of any assets you have when you have a potentially a CBDC that would allow for that. And is mm-hmm. there a solution with blockchain that can secure the privacy and democracy and the Fourth Amendment that doesn't allow the government in the U.S. to check what what you have in your home.
1: So the short answer is there is a technology solution. The longer answer is that uh, we've seen a trend going from what what we call private and permissions blockchain. So the, so this is blockchains where we set it up between very few counterparties or even one counterparty who runs several servers and they try to sort of replicate the architecture of a blockchain. And these models simply don't work. They're too expensive. You might as well run it on a centralized, uh, you know, Oracle database or something like that. So we've seen a lot of sort of countries playing around with these things. And they're doing that under an umbrella that, you know, there is more interoperability with this because, you, first of all, you have an opportunity for, let's say, at least other participants or other central banks to sort of speak together. Um, and I think one of the best implementations I've seen is the country of Cambodia. Uh, Cambodia has done a really nice CBDC implementation on a private permissions blockchain. And they've done really fast iterations around that. And a big chunk of that is because they really don't have a money market. So Cambodia don't traditionally have sort of issuance of depth and stuff like that from the state, as we see in many other countries. And that meant that they had an easier financial market infrastructure to do that with. And I think that that looks very promising what they've done from a technology perspective. Now. The problem about this is, again, uh, you know, this is not open for everybody. So it's it's a private financial market infrastructure, right? It is also a financial market infrastructure where you rightfully, as you say, you suddenly have a situation that the government has full insight into what you do from a technology perspective. You can build in barriers. So there are some ways to do. Uh, what we call zero knowledge proof or CK snarks or roll up. So there's some technology where that's why I started with a yes this is fully possible, right? (laughs) But is that what they want, right? And if you then go to the European Union, for instance, who has this uh, digital euro project, you see exactly that this is not what they want. They actually want to have a digital euro where they have the ability, but not necessarily the right to have all of this information. And then, you know, the question is, you know, why would you even do that on what Cardano does, which is a public permissionless blockchain, which allows everybody to have access. When you're what you're actually trying to do here is you're trying to issue sort of a uh, some level of control. And the argument for the control is, of course, what you started by saying is, you know, how do you ensure that the blockchain is not being weaponized? And here we stand as the white knight in the Cardano Foundation, and we are trying to ensure that there is sufficient blockchain for good use cases available for people to get inspired by, that they understand that there is things which can be done to save the world. Obvious, a good move, and it's not a weaponization, right? Because there's this information asymmetry. So my my view is right now that there is a ninety percent of GDP right now is collected around doing CPDCs. Now, most Mm -hmm. of that is not on permissionless and public blockchains. It is on centralized databases or private blockchains because they really feel the need to have control. I wouldn't say it's wrong because I like when when people evolve and start using technology. But I think they've they've misunderstood something. We have digital money today already. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to take away fiat or cash, physical cash. Physical cash is more like a bearer instrument. And that actually gives you some level of privacy, but it also gives you some level of control, uh, which might not be sort of directly linked to a commercial bank or any other balance sheet, right? That's sort of the last sort of bastion of central banking is physical cash, right? Because that actually lies in the central bank's balance sheet in most countries. And I think that what we should be trying to do based on what we saw in COVID was to make, let's say make the politicians or whoever drives the monetary and fiscal policy in a country, which very often is politicians, but sometimes there's a mix between politicians and central banks, we need to give them better tools so when a crisis situation comes, that we can actually um, help the right people and not the people who doesn't need to be helped. And we need to have a way of, of doing this in such a way that we can deal with crises of the future. And to do that, we need to expand what we define as money. We cannot look at it isolated as what we define as money today. So, that's the first thing, and that's why you know we are you know a bit skeptical towards making something which is digital just more digital and removing some of the features and privileges which it already have. Right? That's, that that is not a good trade-off. However, when you look at sort of the reserve currency of the world is the dollar, and I think the dollar is under attack quite heavily at the moment. If you, say, right? I would argue that there is probably a, you know. Outside an external force, you know, a very heavy external force coming into the global macroeconomic landscape, a public permissionless blockchain will probably be the best solution for a world reserve currency, which everybody, regardless of the political uh, sort of stand and regardless of how much power they have at a given time over history, can actually, um, you know, sign up to. But on the CBDC side, I have to say this is... Um, you know, We do see some things like the Singapore uh, from the MAS and other places where they're starting to really understand what a public permissionless blockchain does. But in general, that's you know the architecture does not fit as well to what they want to do. If they want to expand what money is, if they want to actually help the people of the nation state under a crisis situation, if they want to make a better global financial market infrastructure, that's called blockchain. We know how it works and we know it will work. Right. But that doesn't seem to be sort of the gist of what people are trying to do today.
2: Talking about regulations, you're seeing Mika being introduced now. I wanted to touch on that. And if you see a harmonization between EU, the US, what we're doing here in Dubai with VARA, and um is it going to be a common framework for everyone? Is that possible? Or there's going to be a balkanization where different regions compete for business and attracting various people depending on what freedoms you have in your monetary system. Do you see the weaponization of the monetary policy in such a
1: scenario? So I believe in a free market, right? And I think you know um, nation states should have the right uh, to uh, to implement um, attractive policies and regulation for what they're trying to achieve in their country, because it really much also depends on their culture and how they want to position themselves in a global economy, right? And I think, uh, to be honest, I think, you know, Dubai and UAE has been, you know, in the last couple of years, been really front-running that on multiple aspects in terms of technology, in terms of positioning and so on. And I'm very happy to say that VARA is actually also joining the Cardano Summit and will be on stage in our regulatory panel. Um, So as you can probably start to allude to, we work a lot with regulators, and we also give a lot of, we answer public consultations and other things. So we we are very engaged in that. Now, I do believe and I do hope that we can get to a place that there is a global financial market infrastructure from a technology perspective. Now, the regulatory and policy footprint will be implemented differently on this. But if we can get to a global financial market infrastructure, which would be a connection of centralized systems and blockchains, and my hope would be more blockchains and centralized systems but you need that centralized component for the local regulatory footprint and the local sort of cultural uh, enforcement of what you want to do right uh, i think we would be in a much better place because we will waste less resources and we will be start focusing on what really matters and what really matters is how we you know how we how we create growth and happiness in society not just in monetary terms but for humans and society at large and there will be different politicians who have different views on that. But it, it, it is not beneficiary, as we do today, that, for instance, in the European Union, we have 32 different um, centralized security depositories. That's basically where you, you store the information about your shares. So under something like a common umbrella as the European Union, we have 32 databases who does not speak to each other. And if you're trying to sort of bridge that, you need, you know, an army of back office people and, and sort of technology systems to, to verify and do that. That's how you waste money, right? If you mm-hmm. want to do something, you do that on a on a common foundation where you can stand strong and you can build innovation and you can try and, and, and change things, right? Um so I think a global financial market infrastructure, which is a combination of, of of blockchains, not just one blockchain, and centralized systems is the right way to go forward. Um I was just together with the you know the the European banking authorities. Um uh, last week, we had a really good meeting with them, and I was in Brussels around Mika one, Mika two, two weeks ago. And yesterday, I was together with the Swiss banking authorities uh, talking to them about those kind of topics. And for me, what's quite clear is that um, some of those people have, um, they're a bit worried right now because they really invested hard in their career. in in trying to understand blockchain. And what they got was some really bad use cases who really hurt consumers and politically was hot potatoes. But when they sort of take that aside, what they now have is they see players like Cardano and others coming up who is really solving some of the large problems we are seeing in some of those large infrastructures, not just capital markets and financial markets, right? And that is extremely interesting to them. And some of these regulators and policymakers are extremely well educated. They really spend time into the rabbit hole to so try and understand that. But the quality of the information and the resources which, you know, is available for them to, to you know, not to waste their time on the education is, is still not there. And that's why the Cardano Foundation has built um, a regulatory explorer for the Cardano blockchain, which is built for policymakers and regulators who really understand how does it work on Cardano. And we're going to give that away as, uh, by the end of the year in open source so other blockchains can just take what we did and implement their peculiarities and their implementation of the architecture into that. And the hope by that is that we will have the the means for regulators and policymakers not just to have a better education and a better understanding, but also to approve more of these use cases when people apply for it because they have a higher conformity of it, to understand the impact of the regulation they're suggesting better and um, and by that, maybe we can get to a place where we have some global standards. So we say, you know, maybe not all of it will be standardized, right? Some of it will be balkanized. Right? But, but we will have some maybe some standards around how we view certain aspects of it. Uh, and I think that would be a good start. Um, and the other part is we do see that regulators are coming together, like in the IOSCO uh, collaboration and so on, where they sit together in, in closed meeting rooms and invite people like us to give use and they really sort of work through, you know, the purpose of the agency and look at this infrastructure so they don't have to sort of, you know, invent the wheel themselves. So we see a better and better global collaboration was really sparked after uh, Facebook introduced Libra. Um, so I think that's also a very positive aspect that um, so I I actually I'm, I'm I'm fairly positive on some of the development I'm seeing at the moment. I'm also a bit cautious because some of it is very political, like in the US. Mm. And if it's very political, I think, you know, it's that's it's probably not optimizing towards 10 years, but it's optimizing towards the next election. And if you look at Dubai and UAE, for instance, um, um, they're really looking forward. They're saying, you know, how do we actually become number one in 10 years time and what do we need to do? So the time frames is better, which allows more people to believe in the stability of it. So it starts to look a bit like Switzerland in a certain way, right? That is, uh, is boring, is predictable, and it has a long time frame of success. And I think that's that's really nice to see.
2: I want to ask you a little bit more about Mika. Something I believe has been overlooked are the environmental auditing of many of the blockchains. And one of the main advantages of Cardano is, of course, that it is proof of stake. You have the elephant in the room, I believe, is mining with Bitcoin. So much is centered around Bitcoin when it comes to cryptocurrencies. And talking about the Bitcoin, uh, the, the blockchain trilemma, it's extremely costly and cumbersome with transactions. How do you see the future when it comes to having blockchain being a valuable tool? For transactions, essentially, when we're talking about digital assets, for it to have a function, you need to be able to transact them, whether it is micropayments or whether it is other digital assets. And in such a scenario where you're looking at the U.S. right now, they're more or less banning mining. In Europe, it's practically all banned. They're growing very big mining farms in the Middle East. You know, I don't want to make any comments on the environmental impact of that, but I don't think that it is long-term, when you're looking at decades, really the best system to have huge mining and, and energy resources being spent on essentially doing transactions when you have technology that practically requires no energy resources to do transactions. What is your thoughts on this, and what is the role of Cardano and your technology in facing these challenges?
1: So I have a lot of thoughts about that. Uh, So let's start about some of the positive thoughts. I think what Bitcoin did is unprecedented in maybe the last, you know, since the invention of the internet, right? We might see something around AI coming right now, which is going to be as big, if not bigger. But I think Bitcoin really showed the world how you can interact and transfer value with everybody without an intermediary and how a public infrastructure can look like. Now, Bitcoin is built, as you said, around proof of work, which is a subcategory of what we call proof of contribution. And I think sort of the intent of Bitcoin was not to have one use case, but also to do a much, much, much more. But what it sort of ended up in right now is it, it does one or two use cases extremely well with the sort of storage of value and the representation and for. First and foremost, the security of that storage of value. Now, Cardano has um, a utility token which is called ADA or ADA. It's coming after Ada Lovelace, which was the first computer engineer, by the way, a female, um, in the whole world. And uh, what's interesting here is that we didn't build ADA as a as a as a as a piece of money. It's not a it's not a It's not equivalent to a dollar or to a Bitcoin or something like that. We build that to access this decentralized infrastructure. We build that with the mind of that this is what you need to do to have to get access in there, which is very different. We have about 8 million different representations of assets on Cardano, which includes stable coins and other sort of, you know, free float currencies and other things like that. And I'm absolutely certain that you can design the absolute best version of money on the Cardano blockchain, which will enhance the monetary and fiscal uh, policy possibilities. And really, you know, from a technology perspective, Cardano is probably one of the superior places to design something like that due to the way the architecture is set up. But I think what Bitcoin really has done as well is they put a number on something which nobody had a number on before. And I think this is very interesting. So for the first time ever, we know what it costs in terms of electricity and what is the global environmental footprint of that to run an international uh, payment infrastructure or whatever you would call that in, a, in, a, in the real world. And we actually don't know what that costs today. If you look at the footprint of all Arabic banks and you would say, hey, what does that cost in terms of data centers and stuff like that? We actually don't know that. We have a pretty good idea what it costs to send an email, sort of pretty good. And that's really horrifying, actually. So when Mm -hmm. you kind of look at what it costs to send an email and what that actually does in the back end of the last data centers and stuff like that, you suddenly start thinking, oh, hold on a second. How many emails are being sent every single day? Or if I'm using a free cloud provider, what does that actually do? And when you start looking at where these compute centers are, you actually also are able to measure that the temperature in the area goes up. Uh, yes. you know, And many and of them, the they're using the cooling facilities and so on. But, but they're not as transparent as Bitcoin is. And I think one of the things which is very interesting with blockchain, specifically public and permissionless blockchains like Bitcoin and Cardano, is that things become transparent. When you have transparency, um, you can measure something and you can have a view on it and you can start thinking about, do I appreciate that or don't I appreciate that? And Cardano is using 1 million times less energy than Bitcoin or something like that. So it's like tiny. huh? Um, mm. So it shows that there is a an, a, a way to use uh, a public commission as blockchain without having that environmental footprint, right? That's what Cardano really shows. Now, the question you will have would be if I would design a storage of value um, with really what... Bitcoin has become right which is you know not sanctionable, which is not touchable for one centralized entity where nobody can sort of enforce anything on it. Um, what is my trade-off? Would I be willing to do a trade-off um, with that amount of electricity without even knowing what I pay today for having money in a tier one bank or without even knowing you know what the footprint of of, of my activity as a business is today right? And that's that's a hard question, and I think we're not able to answer that. But when I was speaking at the COP um, uh, summit last year, uh, this was exactly what we were speaking about, about green bonds and greenwashing and how you know we can start using this infrastructure for labeling and, and actually certainty that people are, are doing what they're saying they're doing. Right. So I think this is sort of creating a positive trend, even though the it can be argued that the outcome, as you said and phrased it, is is, is fairly negative. But I think what Cardano really shows that it is possible uh, to run something globally uh, in such a way. But I would like to highlight that the that that you know the value of Bitcoin is quite high, huh? And they've not so, done yes. any changes to the code base. Cardano is the blockchain who's done most changes to the code base at the moment of any blockchain. And we've been running for over 2000 days up live now, and I don't know of any other infrastructure other than Bitcoin who has been doing that. So show me any global infrastructure, Facebook, Oracle, IBM, you name it, who has a 2000 days up running um, outside Bitcoin and Cardano. I'm not able to point at it. So yeah, um, there's no arguing that it is a
2: fascinating technology and that it works and that there is a use for just the whole decentralized organization of complex systems. And you're talking about Bitcoin has an astronomical value. Cardano ADA, is or ADA, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, we Um, say ADA. Am I correct in um, that the market capitalization now is $9 billion? How would you, to somebody that is not familiar with crypto, Explain what that value consists of, as an economist.
1: I I, I tend not to do that, to be honest. Um, I'm not so interested in it because when you kind of when you kind of look at it, you have to look at it with different lenses. So the way we look at it is, we're looking at what do people actually do on Cardano. Right. So what are they using Cardano for? Because that's sort of representation of utility. Because as an economist, what I want to know is what is the trade-off? What is the economic trade-off of me doing an action on an infrastructure? right? So I pay something and what do I get? And what we are seeing that people are doing is that they are over 50% of all transactions. They're willing to part away with more economic scarce resources in the terms of ADA uh, by doing something more complex. So um, that means that they are uploading uh, a book, they are using a yeah. smart contract, they're doing a, a token of some art or they are doing a representation of real estate on the blockchain, they are saying, you know what, I want to be as transparent as, as possible. So when I do a transaction from me to you, I will upload uh, a version of my identity in there that forever and ever in time, it is you know locked in there that I did the transaction to you and my identity is embedded in there. So you have the ability to basically, you know, shut down fraud <laughs> with just the change of an infrastructure. It's kind of interesting when you think about it, but also very bit scary, right? Um, so so over 50% of all transactions on Cardano is uh, transactions where people are, able, are willing to part away with more economic scarce resources because they're doing something more advanced than just sending money, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think this is, this is what we're tracking, right, as an economist. So the, well, how do people use it? Right. The second thing we're tracking is, of course, the activity on the blockchain. So what we see is that there is more transactions on Cardano on some days than there is on Bitcoin and on Ethereum, and Ethereum is 50x larger than us. Right. So mm. how can it be that people do more transactions on something as still very large as Cardano, but, but you know in comparison, quite small? Right. And that is because they find more business value. Right? That is because they find that the trilemma is solved in a different way, which adds some hope and some ideas to how they can capture value in the use of the compute infrastructure. And, and that's how I look at it as, a, as an economist. Now, the thing is on Cardano is that the transaction fee, the, the, what you have to pay to access this infrastructure, is a combination of two, there's more components, but it's enlarged two components. It's a fixed fee measured in ADA, and it's a variable fee measured in ADA. And the variability of that is how much uh, storage do you take of the blockchain? So if you do something very simple, it's very cheap. If you do something where you upload more data to the to the blockchain, it costs you more.
2: Yes, this is I mean, very I this interesting. is a huge advantage with Cardano that you have a transparency on the fees and a, a, a deterministic fees. On the blockchain rather than, I mean, I've heard s- stories about shocking gas fees uh, for a single transaction.
1: Exactly. So I think what's really interesting here is when you think about it as an economist, right? Um, we actually have a negative incentive for ADA to go up or to ADA to go down. Now, why is that? Well, that is because you know, you actually want to have ADA to be very stable if you look at the usage and the adoption of Cardano of because ADA is the measurable component you pay to use the compute infrastructure. So the first priority would actually be stability of price is more important than ADA going up or down. Otherwise, se- you have
2: no function of a currency if if, it,
1: if if it's not predictable. The second thing you would sort of be sort of thinking about how you want to optimize towards is um, you want to have a good governance structure in place who uh, can counter the situation that uh, a price fluctuation is happening too fast. And there, so far, we are not there yet. It's built into the research and into sort of the protocol parameters, right? But uh, I think where we would like to get is that and where what the technology really enables you to do is that you can actually build mini versions of Cardano which lies in the same trust layer as Cardano. That sounds very complicated, but bear with me for mine, Um, which will allow you to do magical things. So Cardano has something which nearly no other blockchain has, which is called native assets. And that means you can actually run a a country's uh, financial market infrastructure on Cardano and you can pay in your national currency or you can represent your national currency as a form of gas fee without actually needing to use ADA that's kind of interesting right very, so yes not many blockchains is built like that but cardano can actually do that so there is sort of some 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 ways around thinking about how you can actually take the benefits of 3000 stake pool operators very advanced boss so the consensus of uh, right sort of the you know good solution of how to solve the trilemma and then bring that back into sort of a, a nation state or, or or even a worldwide uh, representation of a financial infrastructure, uh, because you are able to to use native assets in a different way than uh, than just having to always do a smart contract. So this opens up a sort of a a way uh, which have not seen in other ecosystems where no, you can still no, exactly positively enhance out. the incentives of people keep adding to the mainnet, but still kind of carve out these. These satellite infrastructures who actually, and now this is where things get really crazy, right? The market cap of a satellite infrastructure can be thousand X larger than what you would see on the main infrastructure because of the functionality I'm just talking about here.
2: Mm. No, I think that this kind of approach and ethos is really necessary for having a sustainable use case because what i'm seeing with most you know millions of cryptos is that the incentive is to hype up the value or to have a volatility in the value both with the traders that's how they make the money they're not actually interested in the underlying utility of the or or what value what economic value the blockchain itself is benefiting with uh, you make a very good case i i um I'm very excited about the Cardano Summit coming up in less than a month. Uh, let's talk about what we can expect there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we chose chosen Dubai this year uh, and, and I think uh, it was a hard choice, but it was a natural choice because Dubai is both a business hub and an emerging blockchain hub and technology hub in, in general. Right. So we, we we see ourselves as a global project. And uh, last year we were in Switzerland, this year is going to be in Dubai. We're going to welcome a, a broad range of speakers. I already mentioned uh, Vara is coming, but also Dr. Marvin Al Zaruni, the CEO of the Dubai Blockchain Internet Center, will I? be there. Uh, there will be the UNHCR, so United Nations Humanitarian Crisis Organization, who actually have deployed a solution for refugees on the Cardano blockchain and done multiple things there, not just sort of proof of concept, but, but real things there, right? Uh, The World Trade Organization will be there, Boston Consulting Group. So that's going to be sort of like normal household names. And then, of course, there's going to be, you know, quite a few Web3 names in the aspect of, uh, you know, people who run the Cardano blockchain, people who's been deploying on the Cardano blockchain uh, for years and years and so on. And um, I think what it really boils down to is that this year's summit is an opportunity for businesses and political leaders in, in in, in the MENA region to meet with those building on Cardano and i think this kind of collaboration and networking is invaluable for the future development of blockchain and innovation because it sort of supports the foundation's drive towards a greater adoption in general and um if we sort of draw parallels to what's possible in the financial market infrastructure right i would argue that what we see today with the uh, you know the development of internet of things and sensors and standards and the connectivity tissue which we were lacking to the blockchains, but also the maturity of the blockchains, what you will see now is that every single industry around the world would have the same growth potential of using blockchain, as we've seen, has been identified in the financial markets industry. And I think this is what really excites me specifically about this year's um, summit, is this sort of mix of traditional industries with Web3 to really go into breakout rooms and really explore how to get out of the innovation lab and start deploying this because the the infrastructure is ready now.
2: I'm very happy that you're coming to Dubai to um, support the the strong push of digital assets here. And my final question is, um, how do you see Dubai, the UAE market and the Middle East moving forward and its role with the Cardano Foundation and developing uh, blockchain?
1: So there's a few things I cannot mention right now because they're on the drawing board. But uh, in general, I think I would say that the Cardano Foundation's choice of Dubai as the location for the summit 2023 really represents an opportunity for the growing blockchain community in UAE to come together, to learn, to network and collaborate. And that's not just Cardano. There will be multiple other blockchains uh, coming to the Cardano summit, uh, because we actually believe that you know collaboration and improbability is going to unlock the value of third generation blockchains in general. So I think we would we, like to do a big call out for those working in the blockchain and crypto space in Dubai to capitalize on this opportunity and experience firsthand the innovation of the Cardano ecosystem and also adjacent protocols and projects, which is going to be at the at the Dubai uh, Cardano Summit. So, you know, if you're into blockchain, if you're into public infrastructure, also in other industries than, than finance, uh, in, even if you're sort of, uh, you know, on, a, on another blockchain and been there for many years... I think this is a fantastic opportunity uh, to do business, uh, to to make new connections uh, and to really start thinking about, you know, how do we deploy at scale? So I really urge you to come to the Cardano Summit and, and meet with me and meet with my team and all the Cardano community there.
2: Will be great to see you in person, Frederick. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: You're more than welcome. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much, Oscar.
2: Thank you.
0: Sponsor information. The UIE Tech Podcast is distributed by AlbaWeber Business free of charge. To sponsor a single episode or a series of themed episodes, please contact our editorial team or download a sponsorship press pack. Sponsors receive an article on AlbaWeber Business, syndication distribution on AlbaWeber Syndicate, email direct marketing across the region, and brand inclusion across all podcast marketing design, audio, and video formats. Albuaba is not a PR company, and we do retain editorial discretion and quality control as an independent publisher. Companies looking to support a dialogue
1: on technological transformation in the UAE are encouraged to contact our team.